true as I just uh, singing the, that last song a second time. It wasn't real familiar with me the first time we sung it, but I just, I just, <clears throat> I don't know how you felt when you sang that first line, I am a sinner. I don't know about you, but my sinful pride like, had difficulty singing it. I was like, man, I, I really see how, how sinful I am. I didn't even really even want to, my, part of me didn't want to sing it out loud that I am a sinner. Because in our pride, we, we want to think we're, we're, we're righteous people, we're good people, we, we're church going folks. But to sing, I am a sinner, that's, that's, that's the beginning of what scripture says. That God desires for us to have a broken and contrite heart. And uh, may God continually shape us, our hearts, and make us people with a broken and contrite heart to resist all the pride that we often feel uh, that, that we're special, that we're good. There, there's something that's, that in an innate of us that we're not sinners when in reality we are. We need to be people who come to the word of God with recognizing that we're hungry and we're thirsty. When we come to God's word, we, we need God's word. And when we come to God's word with that hungry, thirsty, broken, contrite heart, we hear exactly what God feeds us with in his word. So and so with that thought, we, I invite you to turn with me to the book of Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 22, as we look to God's word and let us feast and let us drink on, upon his word. Again, I just want to extend my warm welcome to all our guests who are with us today. Uh, from sounds like we have some East Coasters as well as some locals, and uh, glad to have you with us, and uh, glad to have you. Well, how encouraging it is to have saints with us uh, on even when your church is at retreat, you still want to worship the Lord. Good to have you with us. Brought your whole family. We're glad that you could worship with us. Thanks for being here. Uh, good example, everybody, for when it's our retreat time. Okay, <laughs> uh, we should go find out what church they go to and go check it out. All right, no, no, we have services here. All right. <laughs> Isaiah 22, are you there? All right. We continue our series through this book of Isaiah. Isaiah 22. It's called The Burden of the Valley of Vision. Uh, let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. Thank you for this passage in Isaiah. A passage that sounds familiar to us, but yet, uh, I think for most of us here, it's, it's unfamiliar. Uh, we don't know what it's about, but Lord, we know that we are, we are hungry and thirsty people. We are sinners in need of your word. And just as your word was uh, appropriate, applicable, relevant for the people of God in, in the day that was written, we know that your word, this passage particularly, is especially still relevant, applicable for your people today. Lord, I pray that you would cause your word to go forth and speak to each one here exactly that which you want them to hear from your word. Encourage, reprove, heal your people, Lord, through your word. We pray that we would receive your word as a people with a broken and contrite heart. That your name would be magnified. That we would grow in our love for you as a result of hearing what you have to say to us today. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Today's, uh, today's subject is, or the title of the sermon is called The Burden of the Valley Vision. And uh, I think for most of us, as I just, in, in my prayer, it's, it sounds familiar, right? When you hear the Valley Vision, you say, have you ever heard of that? You say, oh, yeah, I have, right? But then when asked, usually when you ask someone about it, oh, what is that about? Say, mm, I don't know. Um, I think for most of us here in the church, and I, and I use it in the first service, and I'll use it here, even though the guy's in the in service today, is I, I think of Brian Chang when I hear Valley of Vision. <laughs> as, uh, he's one of our worship leaders. He's sitting down in the middle. Is that he, oftentimes he'll read from this book, 
uh, when he leads worship, oftentimes, not every time, but oftentimes, he'll read a, a, a passage from uh, from the Valley of Vision. And so that's why, for many of us, if you've never been exposed to it, because we don't generally read Puritan works uh, every day, uh, it is one of those, it is, it's familiar to us. But when you come to the passage, it's like, what is it about? Well, that it's it's kind of it is somewhat vague because it's well, it's in the prophets. It's in Isaiah. It's not a book that we or a chapter that we study too often. But it, as I've come to, as I study this passage this past week, I've come to realize, man, what a, a great passage this is. What a gem in the middle. I mean, I, I was I was um, when I was in chapter like eighteen, nineteen. You know, I was thinking to myself, I should have just gone from thirteen to twenty three. You know, I preached all three and just go straight to twenty four. I'm glad I didn't. Because of this chapter, Isaiah 22. It is a gem within these, these oracles of judgment. It is a, a passage that I just, man, so ministered to, to me, and I, I believe it ministers to the people of God with you this morning as well. So I'm excited about this text, uh, just having preached it this morning already. But um, I'm excited for you guys when we hear God's word. Well, now, Valley of Vision. Well, anyways, it has to do with prayer. If you want to learn how to pray more passionately and thoughtfully, there is perhaps no better book than the, the book that I just mentioned, the, the Valley of Vision book. Uh, that book, The Valley of Vision, it's actually a book that was written in 1975, okay, before many of you were born, I believe. Uh, but it was edited by a man named Arthur Bennett, it's a, and it was a collection of Puritan prayers and devotions. If you know the Puritans, or you just kind of know the reputation of the printers, of the Puritans, they were a very devout group of people. They really loved the Lord their God. They were real serious about their faith. They were very reflective, meditative. They would uh, write often about uh, the works, uh, about what they were thinking about God. But the book... The Valley of Vision is not so much a book that teaches you, in a sense, how to pray. It doesn't tell you, well, this is what the scripture says about prayer. Here's the Lord's Prayer and break you down verse by verse. And this is what it, what it means. These different steps you can take in prayer. Uh, pray, you know, Jesus, others, and then yourself. Uh, or Acts, you know, pray those things. But the, the Valley of Vision is a, is a book that really shows us how to pray. It models for us how to pray. It shows these deep thoughtful works because the Puritans, they would write out their prayers. You know what I mean? When I pray, I don't write it out. I just kind of, yeah, spirit-led, you know, kind of just come out, just pray something that that's reflected true. But they would reflect upon it probably over some significant time and then write out their prayers. And when we read these prayers, they just show, reveal to us the kind of prayers that our prayer life could be. That we could think, all of us could think more deeply about God's word and all of us could pray a little more Sincerely, retrospectively, honestly, about ourselves and about God in our prayers. And we learn this from the Puritans. We learn this from uh, this book, uh, The Valley of Vision. Now, I want to read for you uh, one of the first uh, prayers that are listed in this Valley of Vision. And it's this, uh, our, and I, I want to read it for you because it is a reflection. It kind of leads into our sermon this morning. The Valley of Vision. It's, it's, this is entitled The Valley of Vision. Lord, high and holy, meek and lowly, thou hast brought me to the valley of vision where I live in the depths, but see thee in the heights. Hemmed in by mountains of sin, I behold thy glory. Let me learn by paradox that the way down is the way up, that to be low is to be high, that the broken heart is the healed heart, that the contrite spirit is the rejoicing spirit, that the repenting soul is the victorious soul. That to have nothing is to possess all. That to bear the cross 
is to wear the crown, that to give is to receive, that the valley is the place of vision. For the Puritan author, the valley of vision that he calls, that he describes here in, in his poem is that time or place of, of darkness that all mankind experiences at different times in their life. Uh, where we're in the valley of darkness, just, and it's very similar to the David's, the shepherd's psalm, Psalm 23, when, when we're walking through the, the valleys of life, those valleys of deep darkness that Psalm 23, 4 talks about, or the valley of the shadow of death is most of our translations. But when we walk through those valleys, it is in the midst of those valleys, those difficult times, those dark times, that we as the people of God should see him more clearly. That's in the darkness that you see God more clearly. And it's so much, we see him so much more clearly and realize his presence that it is like a vision. That we get a, in the darkness, we receive a clear vision of God. And I think all of us here would attest, if you live long enough on this earth, if, you've, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, if you walk through a valley, have you not, during those times, seen God work so clearly and powerfully? Have you not grown in your love for God? Have you not appreciated the gospel even more? You know, I always think about every time, one of the darkest valleys in my life recently was the passing of my father. And I always remember when, whenever that, when I went through that valley, when I come into church, when I was in the church, and I was just worshiping with you. The gospel, the simple gospel that we sing about every week, that, you know, we kind of just saying we got used to, we hear all of Jesus Christ after my sins, and because I believe in him, I have eternal life. You know, that, that basic message, it just rings so powerfully. It's so encouraging. It lifts us up because we see clearly in the light of, in the midst of our valleys. And this theme of this valley of vision is reflected in our scripture this morning. It comes from this passage. In fact, the valley of vision is not really based upon the book. It's based upon this passage of scripture. Isaiah 22, that when the people of God find themselves in valleys, facing valleys, times of darkness, that God intends it for us to see him more clearly. Now, in Isaiah 22, we come across an oracle of judgment upon the city of Jerusalem. Just like the three oracles before it, it's uh, an ambiguous title is used. He doesn't just come out and say, the oracle of Jerusalem, or the oracle against Jerusalem. He says, God says, the oracle of the Valley of Vision. Jerusalem is called the Valley of Vision. Later on, we're going to see uh, in the later verses that Jerusalem is meant here. But the lesson for Jerusalem, the lesson for the people of God we find is that in this passage, where it's talking about the judgment of Jerusalem, the judgment of Judah, the promise of this inevitable judgment upon sinful Jerusalem is intended to teach God's people to realize that their strength is not to be found, their hope is not to be found in man's abilities nor man's accomplishments. They're not to look to themselves. They're not to look to, to other people, to other nations. But they're to look to God. For God is the one who is to be the one we look to, the one that we focus upon when we are in the valleys of our lives. And that's text, our text this morning encourages us to do just this to trust in the Lord through every circumstance of life. Now, this, of course, continues the theme of these oracles of judgment. This continues this theme of, the, of uh, these oracles against the nations. Isaiah 13 to 23 encourages God's people to not trust in nations, to not trust in its 
politics, its power, its people, but to put their trust in the Lord. The historical context of all these oracles is Judah and Jerusalem under the threat of the Assyrian Empire. Now, you remember the Assyrian Empire, where Judah had rebelled along with Babylon at this time. Under Last week we looked at Merodach, Baladon, and how he led the rebellion. Anyways, now Assyria has defeated Babylon, and Assyria is going to clean up by going in, basically conquering again all these little nations that had rebelled against against it to make them pay up, essentially, what they, were, uh, the, uh, what they needed to pay. So that's, that's the context. Now, it, it's kind of surprising, even as you can imagine, being the people of God, Judah or Jerusalem, receiving this, this prophecy, Isaiah's giving it, that you're, we're hearing these prophecies against Babylon. Oh, yeah, they're, they're wicked. They're idol worshipers. Philistia, oh, yeah, they're a constant thorn in our flesh. Yeah. Moab, oh, yeah, our, those cousins over there, they're, they're always attacking us. They're always trying to get us to worship their idols. Damascus, Syria, oh, yeah, they just attacked us. Egypt, oh, yes, they, didn't they keep, put us in slavery? Yeah, they all deserve judgment. And then God says here in this passage, well, I'm going to judge you too. I was like, whoa, what? I'm a saint. I'm not a sinner. I'm the people of God. I don't, I, I, don't, I don't deserve judgment. But the reality is, as you and I, if you, you and I know, you, you can be a Christian and still, be a, and still fall into sin. We still, even though we are our followers of Christ, we're the people of God, we can be just as sinful at times as the nations. We're just as susceptible to temptation, to put, in, and to, to put our trust in mankind, put our trust in ourselves instead of putting our trust in God. However, in contrast to the nations, you and I, the people of God, we should know better. We ought to know better. We who have known the power of God in our lives, we should know better than to put our trust in anything else than God. And may, our, may we learn from our lesson, the lesson this morning, the text of this morning, as we study this burden of the Valley of Vision. An outline, this is going to be a two-point outline for us this morning. Uh, we're going to look at, in this oracle, two judgments upon Jerusalem that teach God's people the folly of trusting in any other, in any other person, in any other thing. Instead, we are to put our trust in Him, our God. Let's take a look in this text then. First of all, we look at, number one, the first judgment in this oracle is the judgment of Jerusalem's people. God says in verses 1 to 14 that he's going to judge the people of Jerusalem, all the people living in Jerusalem. And it begins here in verses 1 to 4 with a, an apparent, or not apparent, but with a disparity between the people and the prophet. There's a circumstance that's taking place, an event that's taking place here. And we see the response of the people, and it's quite different from the response of the prophet Isaiah. First of all, look at the response of the people in verse 1 to 2. The oracle concerning the valley of vision. What is the matter with you now? That you have all gone up to the housetops. You who are full of noise. You boisterous town. You exultant city. We see here the reference to the valley of vision. And again, uh, just you look to verse 9 and 10 later on to, to find out that this valley of vision is a reference to Jerusalem, to the city of David. But by addressing them here as the valley of vision, God is hinting at them, indicating that they are actually in a valley. They're in a, a period of a place of darkness. But the rebuke that's going to follow indicates that somehow, for some way, Jerusalem is actually unaware of it. They're unaware that they're in the, uh, a valley. They're unaware that they're in, facing de- darkness. Instead, you'll notice they're rejoicing. They're partying. 
When you have a party, you don't, you know, well, okay, maybe you need to go to your basement. But you go up to your rooftops. That's where you celebrate, because that's where the sun's at, and that's where the, the cool air is. You go up there, you go to get a nice view, and you get all your friends out there. You, you make noise, you, you're boisterous, you, you exalt, you're rejoicing. And that's what Israel was doing. At the, that's what Jerusalem was doing at this time. But there is a modern rebuke here. It says, what's the matter with you? What's up with you? Why are you doing this, in a sense? Now, in light of the context of this, of the previous oracles, as well as later on in verse 8 through 11, it seems to me that Jerusalem has a pretty decent reason to be celebrating. Okay, this is, remember, the Assyrian, the Assyrian attack. And it's likely, it's most likely, especially in light of verses later, that they're celebrating about the, of the deliverance of Jerusalem from the attack of the Assyrian king Sennacherib. And this happened in 701 BC. Remember, the Assyrian king Sennacherib came and sieged Jerusalem. We know from as later on, verse 36, 37, 38, that God would deliver uh, Jerusalem miraculously without them even lifting up their, their swords. They don't have to do a thing. And God delivers them and Sennacherib goes home and, and the army is basically one night is wiped out. So the city is rejoicing over this. And they're, they're celebrating the deliverance that, the, that they've experienced uh, from the Assyrian assault. But unexpectedly, while the whole city is rejoicing, you're saying, that, well, that's a great thing. That's what we, I, I think we'd be doing that same thing if we, were, if we had um, seen such a deliverance. Unexpectedly, Isaiah weeps. We'll see this in the next few And the reason why Isaiah weeps is that, we'll see in verse 4 that he's weeping, is that he sees something that they don't. He sees something that they don't. In verses, latter half of verse 2 to 3, we read, and all these, what we find here is a, a vision uh, from uh, a prophetic vision of Isaiah. He sees this prophetically. And it's all written in the past tense. We uh, Scholars believe that this is, uh, this is the prophetic past tense. Uh, it happens in the New Testament as well. That sometimes God, when he gives prophecy, it's so certain that it will be written down, described as, in the past tense. So we see a prophetic past tense of the future events. Your slain were not slain with the sword, nor did they die in battle. All your rulers have fled together and have been captured without the bow. All of you who were found were taken captive together, though they had fled far away. Therefore I say, turn your eyes away from me. Let me weep bitterly. Do not try to comfort me concerning the destruction of the daughter of my people. You see, this reference, the last statement that Isaiah makes is that this is concerning the destruction of the daughter of my people. He's talking about the city of Jerusalem is, being, is destroyed. That's what he sees here. See, and that sets the, and that sets the context for verse 2 and 3. That what Isaiah sees is a future destruction. Because when Assyria is sent away, the people, Jerusalem is not destroyed. Uh, it's actually delivered. So what, he's seeing something that's taking place in the future. Isaiah sees death in the city that's with, not as a result of battle. Not because of any swords were, were lifted up. Most likely he's seen death as a result of disease, as a result of famine. He sees rulers of the city fleeing and, and deserting and abandoning the people of God. He sees people all together being taken captive. The whole city is being led captive away. This is the vision that he sees. And this is a vision of the future destruction of Jerusalem at the hands of the Babylonians. This would take place in 586 BC, much uh, about 120 years later. 
And this fulfillment, if you just look at this description, it's actually consistent with what was described in 2 Kings 25. 2 Kings 25 there, and uh, you can write it down, look it up later, of where when Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, comes and destroys Jerusalem and takes her people captive. Now, this vision of destruction that Isaiah sees that the people in Jerusalem don't see causes Isaiah to weep. He's realizing that the... He, Everybody's excited because Jerusalem's been delivered. Jerusalem's free. We're, we're, we're free from a Syrian uh, threat. But Isaiah sees the sorrow of the destruction of Babylon, of Jerusalem. Though they've been spared temporarily, he sees that the destruction is inevitable. It's coming. He saw the, the valley that awaited Jerusalem. And he wept. Now the disparity between the people is because he saw it clearly. He saw it through a vision. And in verses 5 to 7, he specifically describes this, this calamity that's awaiting the people. For the Lord God of hosts has a day of panic, subjugation, and confusion in the valley of vision. A breaking down of walls and a crying to the mountain. Elam took up the, took up the quiver with chariots, infantry, and horsemen. And Kerr uncovered the shield. Then your choices valleys were full of chariots, <clears throat> and the horsemen took up fixed positions at the gate. What awaits uh, the people of God, Jerusalem, is a day, a future day. When we hear that word future day, we often think of God refers to it as a day of judgment. Sometimes it's a near future, sometimes it's far future, sometimes it's, type, uh, it's a type of that far future. But here it's referring to that future day, that near future day of the Babylonian destruction. It's a day of panic, a day of subjugation, a day of confusion. If you have the NIV, it actually uh, very well reflects, uh, translates the, the alliteration that's actually in the original language. In the NIV, it reads, it's a day of tumult and trampling and terror. <coughs> but most importantly, what we see here, that this destruction is not because of the Syrians. It's not because of the Babylonians, though they are the instruments of the destruction. But you see in verse 5, it's because of the Lord and God of hosts. He has a day. God has set a day of panic, subjugation, subjugation, and confusion. All that is going to take place, the destruction of Jerusalem at the hands of the Babylonians, all that's going to happen where the whole val- where walls are going to be broken down, where people are going to be crying to the mountain, where nations are going to come... Are going to surround Jerusalem with El- Babylonians, with the Elamites, the Kur, other other uh, uh, vassals of Babylon that will come alongside to join with them. Where the the valleys, the the valley of Hinnom, uh, alongside Jerusalem, will be full of chariots running through. Horsemen will be take up fixed positions at their gates. It's all because of the Lord God of Hosts. His providential, sovereign will. You know, it's one thing to be surrounded by enemies, by enemy armies. But it's a more terrible thing than when those armies are there by the providential will of God. When they are there by the will of God, it is an inevitable judgment. The defeat is sure. And we know this. The defeat, and, and why are they going facing this judgment? Why are they, this calamity awaiting the people of God? Because of their sin. Judgment is because God is holy, he will always punish sin. It's because of Jerusalem's sin. We see in verses 8 through 11, Isaiah reveals the the sin of the people, the self-sufficiency of the people, their iniquity that's before them. Verse 8, 
and through 11. And he removed the defense of Judah, or really it could be when he removed the defense of Judah. In that day, you depended on the weapons of the house of the forest. And you saw that the breaches in the wall of the city of David were many. And you collected the waters of the lower pool. Then you counted the houses of Jerusalem and tore down the houses to fortify the wall. And you made a reservoir between the two walls for the waters of the old pool. But you did not depend on him who made it, nor did you take into consideration him who planned it long ago. The focus now returns to Isaiah's present day, the, the, when the, why the people are all celebrating uh, because of this, the recent deliverance of Jerusalem from Sennacherib's assault. When God himself removed the defense of Judah, and that's exactly what happened. All of Judah, all its fortified cities, in fact, about, I think the number is 46 fortified cities of Judah, were all taken by and overrun by a Sennacherib. Only one left was left, and that was Jerusalem. The whole defense of Judah was taken away, by, removed by God. But in that day, what did the people of God do? When in that valley, what did they do? They, did they depend upon God? No, they didn't. They depended upon themselves. There are two key verbs in this section. They're both mentioned twice in verse 8 through 11. The first key verb is the verb depend. Depend. It's mentioned in verse 8 and mentioned again in verse 11. Literally, the verb depend means to look. To look to something. You and I still use that word even today to that, with the same kind of meaning. We, we say, hey, uh, you know, I, can, I know I can, I can look to, I, you know, I can look to my plumber, Jesse, whenever I got problems in my house. You know, he's my guy. I look to him. Who do you look to when uh, you need help with your homework? Who do you depend upon? I look to my parents. I look to my pastor when I'm going through difficulties or trials. I look to my spouse. That's when we use that phrase to, as an as a expression of dependence. When we look to someone, we are saying that we depend upon them. When God allowed Judah to be overrun by Assyria, the people of Jerusalem looked, not to God, but they looked to their military might. They looked to their weapons. They looked to the, the weapons that they had stored in their armory, the, the house of the forest. That's a, a place that's one of the, the men, a name for one of their armories. They not, so not only did they, in the, time, in the midst of the valley, they looked away from God and look to their weapons and the military might. But the second key verb comes, brings us further out is that the second key verb is the word, verb see or to saw or saw. We see it in verse 9, saw. But we'll see it again in verse 11 where instead of translated as see or saw, it's translated take into consideration. And I believe if you have a, a footnote, uh, it might tell you that that's the, the translation there. To see him take into consideration. It's the same verb, identical Hebrew verb. To see something is to focus on something, to, to, to notice something. And the, the people of Jerusalem, under the threat of Assyrian con- conquest, instead of seeing and focusing upon God, they saw and focused on what they could do. They saw the breaches in the wall. They saw the holes in the wall, so they, they tore down their houses to fortify it. They saw the, for, the vulnerability of their water supply if, if under siege, and so they collected waters by building a reservoir between the two walls of the city, 
This would become known as Hezekiah's Tunnel, which served as a conduit for the waters to be gathered. And you can imagine, this kind of activity would not be, it's not necessarily wrong in, in a state of war. If you're going to be under siege, you should probably prepare. Uh, you should, you know, if you know you're going to be robbed, you should probably, you know, put up, you know, your, your, your alarm system or, you know, lock your doors and put up bars or whatever. You know, just something to protect your house. And so they, that's what the people were doing. The problem is, though, they were doing these things first. Instead of seeing and focusing on God. They failed to trust God. Verse 11, you did not depend on him who made it. That is, they didn't look to God who made the whole circumstance that they're in. Nor did they take into consideration, that is, they didn't see him who planned it long ago. They didn't focus upon God who's in the one who's ultimately in charge and sovereign over everything that's happening to them. Not only from the Assyrians at their door, but also the fact that the water runs through the city so that they can actually kind of block it up so that they can store water for themselves to last through the siege. All of it was the result of God. God was behind it all. But instead of looking to and seeing God's hand upon their lives, they looked to and saw only their own lives. They looked at their own abilities, what they could do. You know, you and I are like that sometimes. You know, when you have a problem, you're in the valley, immediately you kind of, it's very natural for us because that's just part of being human. We try to figure it out ourselves. So what can I do? What am I going to do about this? I'm going to do this, 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 and this, and I'll solve my problems. But whenever we have problems, no matter how great, no matter how small, God would desire, desires for us to go to him first, to trust him first, to look to him, to see him. There's a quote, um, one of the commentators writes, and I want to read it for you. It's, it just appropriately states uh, the point here. The circumstances of the Lord's people are not chance but design. And the resource is not to change their circumstances, that is to challenging, challenging his will, or question them, doubting his will, but to throw themselves in faith upon the doer, the potter himself. So that's what God desires for his people, of his, the people in Jerusalem to do. He brought, he's bringing about this judgment, this valley for them, and he wants them to turn to faith in him. But in and actually, not just the, the, valley, the, the valley of the Babylonians, but even the Assyrian attack, he wanted them to turn to him. But instead of turning to him, they put their trust in themselves. They didn't trust the Lord. They did not respond to God's call to turn to him. And so they were guilty of sin. As we see in verses 12 to 14, God, through Isaiah, pronounces the guiltiness, the, the judgment, uh, the guiltiness of the people, the culpability of the people in verse 12 to 14. Therefore, in that day, the Lord God of hosts called you to weeping, to wailing, to shaving the head, and to wearing sackcloth. That is, when the Syrians were at, were at your door, you should have been repenting. You should have been turning to the Lord. That's, these are expressions of repentance, of, of sorrow, of turning to God in faith instead of turning to the Babylonians or the Egyptians or other nations. Verse 13, instead... There is gaiety and gladness. They're rejoicing on their housetops. Killing of cattle and slaughtering of sheep. Eating of meat and drinking wine. Let us eat and drink for tomorrow we may die. But the Lord of hosts revealed himself to me. Surely this iniquity shall not be forgiven you until you die. Says the Lord God of hosts. What stands out here very powerfully in this verse, verse 14, is that last, is that statement of God. Surely... This iniquity will not be forgiven you. 
the people were rejoicing. They're rejoicing over, uh, <clears throat> over, uh, <clears throat> over what they had been able to accomplish. They were celebrating. They were eating. They were feasting. They were saying, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. They had done all that they could in their own strength. They had ate, and so they felt, well, we might die. We might as well just kill the rest of the cattle and eat a good, healthy meal. Get a, you know, that last meal. And then tomorrow, let's go out and battle, and we'll all die, maybe. But there was still one more thing that they could have done. It's the one thing that they should have done from the very beginning and throughout to the end, is that they should have turned to God in faith. They should have turned to him in prayer and repentance and sorrow and cry out, Lord, oh God, have mercy on me. I, we are sinners. Historically, God does deliver them. We know for later on, Isaiah will read. But he's, they are delivered because of Hezekiah's faithfulness, their king's faithfulness. But God would not forgive the sin of the people. Just like the promise to destroy Nineveh of Assyria. You can't remember Jonah's story? That because they repented, God spared Nineveh at that time. But their sin would be judged inevitably at one point, and eventually Nineveh was destroyed. In the same way, these Israelites were still guilty of sin, and God would judge them for the sin. You know, sometimes we think, you know, when we sin, we, if God doesn't judge us right there and then, we're like, oh, I'm scot free. But judgment, God does not forget. God will judge us for our sins. God will eventually judge them by casting them out of the land at the hands of the Babylonians. The vision that Isaiah saw would take place, would happen. It's already been prophesied earlier in, in Isaiah because of their sin. And Jerusalem's sin is ultimately a sin of what? It's a sin of unbelief. It's a sin of not trusting, not believing in God. Instead of trusting in God, they were trusting in their own strength. They ignored, and they ignored the Lord God of hosts. This is their God. They were not, they were not in, in the midst of this valley. They should have turned to God, but they did not. Three times, and this is brought out three times in these verses by the emphasis on who God is. A title for God is the Lord God of hosts. Lord God of hosts. Three words are used here, really, to emphasize who he is. is To emphasize that he is Lord. He is Master. He's the Adonai. He's God, or sometimes uh, the Lord, all, all caps, is the, the personal name of God. Yahweh. He's the eternally existent God. The I am who I am God. The God who is who has eternally existed from the very beginning, who's created all heaven and earth. And he is the Lord of hosts, the God of hosts. He's the almighty God, the God who is, leads the, a host of angelic armies. This is who God is. Three times he is this. And three times mentioned, this is who your God is. Why don't, and then, so therefore, if this is who your God is, trust in him. You know, because it's like God saying, well, do you believe that I am the Lord God of hosts? We say, oh yeah, you are. And he says, or do you believe that I'm the Lord God of hosts? He says, oh, yeah, yeah, you are, man. Praise the Lord God of hosts. He says, do you believe that I'm the Lord God of hosts? Yes, you, you do know. That's why, that's why we're here. That's why we gather. That, I'm, your, I'm, your, I'm a Christian. 
then why don't you trust me? Why, when you went through that last, that valley that you're going through, why are you despairing? Why do you, why do you are tempted to turn away from him, to walk away from him? Why are you saying, well, oh, no, I just don't want, I don't, I can't be with God's people right now. I just need my own time. Why do you turn instead to look to your own abilities and strengths to figure through things out? I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna need help. Why do you turn to the world for help, for solutions to your problems when God wants you to turn to him first and foremost. Turn to him first. Look to him first. See him first in your valley. See him clearly for who he is. He is the Lord, the God of hosts. And he is your Lord and God. He is your Savior. He is the God of mercy. The God who loves you. The God who cares for you. Look to him. See him. In your valley. To know him as the Israelites did and fail to trust in him is a sin. And you and I, we can sin like this quite often too. We do it all regularly. Just as a brother standing in this prayer. We who know Jesus Christ, the power of his resurrection. And we know him as Savior and Lord. And yet when we don't trust him in the face of life's trials. That's sin. Oh yes, there was temptation. Don't get me wrong. We all are tempted to not trust in God when we face trials. We all are. But God allows that valley in our lives so that we might learn to trust in him, to trust in his strength, to trust in his wisdom. When you find yourself in the valley, what do you do first? Do you pray? Or do you try to figure it out? Do you express your need for God? And you're complete in trust in him to work things out. Do you look to him or do you look to yourself or to look to others? Do you see and focus on him or do you see and focus on yourself and your problem at hand? Because you know when you see and focus on your problems at hand, it kind of leads to more despair. But when we look and see him, focus on him, it leads to peace because we know he's the Lord God of hosts. He's our sovereign, providential God. It is a foolish thing for us as believers in Christ to trust in our own strengths, our own abilities in the midst of the valleys when we have the Lord God of hosts right at hand all the time. Let us trust in him. We learn this truth from this judgment of Jerusalem's people. We learn this truth again. It's affirmed for us in the second judgment of this oracle, and that is the judgment of Jerusalem's leader in verses 15 to 25. Failing to trust in God is not just a national problem. It's not just Jerusalem's problem or Judah's problem. It's also an individual problem. Before the whole nation really learns, it walks away from trusting God, it really, it begins with individuals. And oftentimes it begins with individuals who are leaders. This is true for every organization, every nation, every church in this world. The larger group will fall into sin when the leaders fall into sin. And the leaders, the Jerusalem's leaders here fail to trust in God. And by their failure to trust in God, leads Israel to trust, failure to trust in God. Now at this time, King Hezekiah is the only, is, is the king. And he actually turns out to have, to respond in faith. At one point we'll read that. But he's not the only leader of the nation. 
Just as we know, President Obama is not the only one who's uh, the leader of our nation. There are many other people in his, in his cabinet, in the different uh, uh, departments of our nation, as well as our state's governors and legislatures and Congress and, and our city and the mayors, our, our council members, and uh, various different departments. According to Isaiah 36 and 2 Kings 18, those are two chapters that describe these events surrounding the Syrian conquest, the Syrian assault upon Jerusalem. Three other men serve very significant leadership roles alongside King Hezekiah. They are Eliakim, Shebna, and Joah. Those three men. They're, they're mentioned multiple times in those, in those stories, those records. Both Eliakim and Shebna are found in this text. And so that gives us just further confirmation that this is the circumstances. This, this is uh, regards to the Assyrian uh, conquest of or attack on Judah. While both are mentioned, the focus is on Shebna. Shebna's, particularly Shebna's, his, his sin, his failure to trust in the Lord. And it begins in verse 15, 16 with the reproach of Shebna. It's kind of... <coughs> Just that as a side, it's kind of, man, uh, feel sorry. I kind of feel sorry for Shemna because it was, you know, this is how his sin is so bad that it's recorded forever in scripture, you know, so that whenever people get to Isaiah 22, they always preach about how Shemna sinned against God. His name is mentioned here. It's like, wow, man, this is a further reminder to us who are leaders, you know, there's an accountability to be a leader. Uh, your name can go down in infamy. It can be like in scriptural infamy, being one who uh, sinned against God. But here's the reproach of Shebna, the rebuke of Shebna, in verse 15, 16. Thus says the Lord God of hosts, Come, go to the steward, to Shebna, who is in charge of the royal household. What right do you have here, and whom do you have here, that you have hewn a tomb for yourself here? You who hew a tomb on the height, you who carve a resting place for yourself in the rock. Now, first of all, we notice here that Shebna is called a steward. Uh, and steward, we know, is someone who's put in charge of a master's household. Everything. And it's not just, he's not just the, the butler. He's in charge of everything. The whole running of the whole house. So that the, you know, the, the master just kind of kicks back and relaxes. The steward does everything. He runs the show. And this particular steward, Shebna, is in charge of the royal household. He's in charge of King Hezekiah's house. Basically, the idea is this man is second in command in Jerusalem only to the king, King Hezekiah. But God calls Shebna out. He calls himself out because of, well, what seemingly is an innocent thing. He's building for himself a tomb. Well, I mean, you know, it's wise, right? If you kind of get to your my age or older, you should start thinking about, well, you know, well, am I going to be buried or am I going to be cremated? Should I make sure I kind of have some things taken care of? Should I make sure that, you know... Those kind of end-life decisions are, are kind of handled. Yeah, you want to do that, so that I have love for your kids. But that's, that's really not what he's condemned for. Shebna is condemned for the attitude and why he goes about doing these things. He's making a tomb for himself. A tomb, first of all, it's a tomb for himself here, but, but he does so. He hews a tomb on the height. So he's actually picking it for himself, a tomb that will be prominent. He's building a tomb that will be prominent. So like a monument. To himself. You ever go to those, you know, older cemeteries? They don't, newer cemeteries don't really have it these days. You go to the old cemeteries. You see these big, giant, gaudy, you know, 
monuments, like, man, what a waste. You know, but they, it's like, because it's really expensive. There's a big giant rock here, and it has, you know, spooky things, all, you know, creepy looking things all over it. And, and that's a monument to someone who died. It's like, man, that person must be creepy. But actually, I usually tell me, well, that guy was probably really into themselves, you know, that they want to have a monument to themselves. That's the kind of attitude that Shemna had. He wanted to make himself a resting place for himself where he would be remembered for future generations. So people can go and say, oh yeah, remember Shemna, what a great leader he was. But keep in mind, this is about, this is in the middle of wartime. The defenses of Judah are overrun. It's like all the different cities in your country are overrun and Assyria is about to come on your door. And what are you doing? You're building a monument to yourself? What kind of leader are you? It's like a leader, you know, is in the midst of war. It's like, you know, out there building his own, like, lakefront house, you know. It's like, well, you know, shouldn't you be focused on the war at hand? That's what Shemna was doing. He was focusing upon himself. He was looking out for himself instead of looking out for the people of Jerusalem. He was reproached for this. He was a self-focused, self-centered man. And the repercussions of this are found in verse 17 and 19. Behold, the Lord is about to hurl you headlong, old man. He's about to grasp you firmly and roll you tightly like a ball to be cast into a vast country. There you will die, and there your splendid chariots will be. You shame of your master's house. I will depose you from your office. I will pull you down from your station. It is so ironic. Shebna wants to build a tomb for himself on one of the highest places in Jerusalem so that everybody remember him. But God says, no. I'm going to roll you up like a ball. I'm going to throw you to a far land, to a vast land. And basically, he's going to be cast out of Jerusalem, of Judah. So that he will never be buried in this tomb that he, he's building for himself. And there he's going to die. There his splendid chariots will be. All that he's built, he will, he's the shame of his master's house. And it's likely, Shemna, and we can't be too sure about it, but it's also quite likely that Shebna was one of those, many of the leaders, who were advising King Hezekiah and all Judah to put their trust in the nations. Because in later chapters, it's going to be, God's going to reprove Jerusalem for turning to Egypt. Turning to Egypt for, you know, deliverance. When they should have turned to God, maybe Shebna was saying, no, what we need to do is turn to Egypt. We need to go to Egypt for help. Let's go to Egypt. And, uh, and maybe that's the country, uh, or it could have been Assyria, where he is cast out by God, where he dies. And most importantly, he's taken, he's removed from service. He's taken, he will be deposed from his office. He'll be pulled down by God. It's very interesting because when you get to Isaiah 36, when we start reading it, Shebna there is not, no longer called a steward. He's no longer over the house of God. He's actually, uh, someone else is. Shebna there was called a scribe. He, by the, and so by the time of Isaiah 36, Shebna already experiences a bit of a demotion. And perhaps, um, by the very end of it, he will be demoted and cast away, or he flees maybe even to Egypt where he will die. But God will replace him. And we see in verse 20 25, the replacement, that this sinful leader who was focused on himself, who did not take care of the people of God, who was in it, focusing on his own wisdom and, and, and uh, his self-sufficiency, God would cast him out. And we read this in verse 20 to 24. He would be replaced. Then it will come about in that day that I will summon my servant Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, and I will clothe him with your tunic and tie your sash securely about him. I will entrust him with your authority and will be, he will become a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, to the house of Judah. Then I will set the key of the house of David on his shoulder. When he opens, no one will shut. When he shuts, 
no one will open. I will drive him like a peg in a firm place, and he will become a throne of glory to his father's house. So they will hang on him all the glory of his father's house, offspring and issue, all the least of his vessels, from bowls to all the jars. Uh, using very figurative language here of, of a tent peg, essentially, is the primary thing, is that Shebna would be replaced by Eliakim. He's the second primary leader that we see. And by Isaiah 36, you kind of really neat things there, that Eliakim in Isaiah 36 is now the steward over the household. He's over uh, Jerusalem, over Judah, instead of Shebna. And it tells us here that Eliakim will be a different kind of leader. He'll be a leader that instead of will be building things for himself, will be looking out for the people of Jerusalem. He will care for Jerusalem. He will have the authority, same, he'll be given the same authority that Shebna once had, where he'll have the key to the house of David, really emphasizing uh, his complete authority. In fact, this term is later on used um, uh, of Jesus in Revelation. So it's possible that Eliakim here, even as you read it, it seems like he might be a type of Christ, but uh, that's an aside. But what kind of stands out here is that God says that he will drive him like a peg in a firm place. And what that means is that he's going to make sure that he has a very secure position of leadership. You know, we're in election season, right? And it's kind of one of the things about elections that every four years, every six years, every so many years, our politicians, they they get all nervous. They they spend a lot of money. They they go around and shake a lot of hands. They they get a lot of photos. They kiss a lot of babies. Because why? Because... Their job is not secure, okay? It's the, the vote will either put it, keep them in there for another two, four, six years, or they'll be out. And so they constantly have to, you know, do things to, to keep their job. And that's, and that's politics today. But even in that day, the politics are the same. A lot of times people could, where your position was as secure as maybe the one who oversaw you, the, your ruler, the one who, uh, who put you in that place. And when they're removed, as kings are often removed in those days, especially when they're surrounded by other enemy nations, then your position will be removed. But God says of Eliakim that his position will be, he'll be like a peg in a firm place. It says it twice. They will hang on him. It says it later on, even describing him later on verse 25, saying this peg driven in a firm place. That his his influence, his uh, security will have such a profound impact on future generations that they will be blessed, according to verse 23. The, the glory of his father's house, uh, they will hang on, verse 24, they hang on him all the glory of his father's offspring, issue, all his future descendants, all his future issue, that is, people who come after him will be blessed because of him. That's the kind of, that's what makes a great leader. A leader who not only is a, looks out for his people, but he will be a blessing to future generations. Those are the kind of leaders we look for, not only in our world, but those are the kind of leaders that God looks for in his church. Men and women who will be faithful to serve and, and who will be a blessing to the people around them and they'll be a blessing to future generations. But even though such is, Eliakim will be such a kind of leader, verse 25 serves as a warning. Because sometimes when we have those kind of leaders, when, we, when you have those kind of leaders, we love them. You should love those kind of leaders if you, if you have them. If we love political leaders, we should love them. We'll pray for them. You know, well, you should pray for them anyways, even if you don't love them. But pray for them. Be thankful for them. But don't put your trust in them. Verse 25. In that day, declares the Lord of hosts, the peg driven in a firm place, that's a lie like him, will give way. It will even break off and fall, and the load hanging on will be cut off, for the Lord has spoken. 
One day, even the peg driven in a firm place will give way. It will, it will fail. And they're reminded here just that no matter what kind of leader, no matter how great they are, no matter the most righteous leader we may have, that at some point they will fail. Probably at many points they'll fail. Is our leaders. There is no one who continually does good and never sins, according to the scriptures. All our leaders are imperfect. You know, that's why I just feel sorry for politicians. We should pray for them because their life is constantly scrutinized. Any little thing, oh, you tweeted this. Oh, you're you're so evil. Newscast, get on it. Oh, you you said that. You joked this. Oh, how insensitive. Have compassion upon our leaders. But the fact is, there's no such thing as a perfect leader. We will eventually you open your mouth long enough, you're going to offend somebody. And we need to remember as God's people that you, God may give you a great leader, a righteous leader, a long-standing leader, to not put your trust, to not get to the place where you put your trust in that man or that woman. But let us always put our trust only in the Lord. And this is a humbling reminder for all of us. Really. I know it's, it was very convicting for myself. I want to be a leader like a Goliath. I want to be a man who is, will be faithful like him, who will always not look to, to my own cares, but to look to care for God's people. And, we, and I think many of our leaders in the church wouldn't want to be such kind of people. We want to be such leaders. But as such leaders, let us then remember that we serve to make God's name great, not our name. Let us seek to always care for those entrusted to us instead of looking to use those entrusted to us. And those are people of God who follow such leaders. Let us never put our trust in our leaders, no matter how great they are. Because God wants us always to put our trust in him and him alone. Let us see our leaders for what they are. That our leaders are simply servants of the Lord. They serve the Lord. They're human beings, imperfect. And therefore, our trust is not to be in our servants. Not to be in the trust in their servants of the Lord, but to put our trust in the Lord himself. To trust in anyone else is folly and sin. And what is more, there's really only one leader worthy to be the object of our trust and faith. The one ultimate servant that Isaiah is going to bring out, starting in chapters 40 and following. And that, that messianic servant is Jesus Christ. If you have not placed your faith in Jesus Christ, he wants you to start even today by believing and trusting in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. See, as human beings, we just want to trust in ourselves each time. We want to figure out our life, our, our, our way. But there is a judgment that is coming, just like the Babylonian judgment, that it is that we can never avoid. And what's more, there's a, there's a judgment that comes after death. We mentioned it last week. That is judgment because of our sin. And the only way of escape is not through trusting to any, turning to anyone else, but it's a turning to trust in the Lord, our God. And the only way of escape from God's judgment of wrath for our sin is to acknowledge that we're a sinner and to God, cry out to God for mercy and to ask for him for forgiveness and to place our trust and faith in him, his death on the cross, his resurrection from the grave for our sins. If you have not done that, will you do that today? For that is the only way of escape. That is the way of putting our trust in him or him alone. As we conclude, God just allow, had allowed Judah to go through the valley of Assyrian assault. Not only that, he allowed them to go through the Assyrian assault to, through the 
through the future valley of the Babylonian conquest. And each time God allows them, so God allows that valley to happen so they would learn to trust in Him. But each time they would fail. Each time they would not learn, they would not trust in Him. They would trust in themselves, they would trust in the nations. But God all along ordains the valleys of their lives so that they would trust in Him. And He does the same for you and me. He ordains whatever valley that He has ordained for you in your life. He's orchestrated every every element of every circumstance of those of that valley. Whatever valley you might be in today, God has orchestrated it. So that you would look to Him to see Him clearly and learn what it means to trust in Him. Trusting in God is it's easy to say. Well, it's easy to begin, right? When we all believe in Jesus Christ, forgiveness, you kind of just, you know, just kind of, yeah, it makes sense. I don't believe in Jesus because I don't want to die. I don't want to die in hell. But it's so hard to keep learning along the way. There's so many different challenge circumstances, whether it is when you, it's, it's just the rest of life are opportunities for us to learn to trust in him. I end with the last, the remainder of that of that poem or that prayer that was of the Valley of Vision that we began with this morning. That last part is just fitting for us. Lord, in the daytime, stars can be seen from deepest wells, and the deeper the wells, the brighter thy stars shine. Let me find thy light in my darkness, thy life in my death, thy joy in my sorrow, thy grace in my sin, thy riches in my poverty, thy glory in my valley. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the valleys of life. Thank you that your word tells us that it's in the midst of our valleys that you orchestrate them so that we would see you more clearly, see you more brightly. And Father, for those of us here and for all of us who may be going through trials right now, valleys in our life, May you help them to see you more clearly. May they help you to see, help them to see you for who you are, the Lord God of hosts, their Lord and Savior from sin, the rock of the refuge, the God of their salvation. Father, help them to trust in you. For us, Lord, help us to have eyes to see, ears to hear, so that we would not forget these words when trials do come. Guard us, Father, in this time of maybe for some of us we're not in a valley we're on that mountaintop but guard us father from losing sight of you guard us from thinking that we've figured everything out that we can handle all that that life brings our way by trusting in our own abilities and our own strengths lord help us never to forget that throughout it all throughout this life and every single day every moment every moment we need you we need your help we need your grace we need your strength and wisdom Father, help us to keep trusting and believing in you. For only in this is the way of life, is the way to life. And only in this is the way of life. These things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. You're dismissed. And have a wonderful week. We'll see you next week.